stuff as it goes along. So um, I'm going to start, and then I'm going to ask you to help me fill in towards the ending. So this is a, it's a, three weeks before Christmas, and this family, um, a mom and a dad and two children are on their way to grandma's house. They're on the freeway, heading down the freeway, and it's snowing lightly, and there's gaily wrapped presents in the back, um, in the way, way back, and the kids are sitting um, restlessly in the second seat, and mom is fiddling with the, the controls of the radio trying to find a Christmas carol, and dad's driving very carefully down the freeway. So mom finds Jingle Bells, the kids know the tune, so the kids start singing Jingle Bells, and mom starts singing Jingle Bells with them, and, and dad looks over, and, and he starts singing Jingle Bells, and they're all singing merrily, and it's the exact picture of Christmas and familial bliss driving down the freeway, and what happens next? Car wreck. Accident. Monster big truck. Right? I mean, the first thought is something catastrophic. But there was nothing in the scene to talk about anything catastrophic at all. Maybe they just get to Grandma's house and have a wonderful dinner. But our default is to go to the catastrophe. Our default is to go to the terrible accident. Now, what I just did is, is not mine. Um, um, Brene Brown is this amazing researcher. Maybe you saw her piece on YouTube. Um, Brene Brown has had 22 million people see her, her YouTube piece from the TED Talks. And she talks about shame and vulnerability. That's what she does. She, amazing. I mean, I've got a crush on this woman. I've never met her. Just amazing work that she does. Shame and vulnerability. In, 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 that, in her book, The Power of Vulnerability, which you can also get her seminars, and I've heard them over and over and over again. They're just so powerful. But what she does is she talks about the fact that that vulnerability is so hard for us to be a part of. One of her quotes that I found that I found so compelling to me was, was we live lives of disappointment so that we won't be disappointed. We live lives of disappointment so that we won't be disappointed. You see, that sense of catastrophe is, 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 so, is so top level of our minds that we prepare ourselves for the very worst that might happen thinking that in some way that will protect us, that will inure us from the very worst. But you know, and, and I know too, that there's no protection from the very worst. That it doesn't matter how, how, how well defended we think we are, Brene Brown calls it armor. No matter how well armored we think we are, the reality is, is, is that when the catastrophe happens, there's no stopping it. When the steamroller begins, then there's no slowing it down. It's what Jesus really understood, or Mark understood and put in Jesus' words, or maybe Jesus actually said in our reading from the Gospel this morning, that no stone will be left upon stone, and that the wars and the rumors of wars will happen. That's a reality. 
It's a truthfulness. And anybody who spent any time anywhere near media since Friday night knows that it can happen anytime, anywhere, to anybody. That's just truthfulness. And it just doesn't go back to Jesus this time. It goes back all the way, um, back to the beginning of time. And, and, and maybe it's about survival, or at least in evolutionary terms, it's about survival. If, if, we're, if we're the most anxious, the most on edge, then maybe we survive the best. And so maybe what we are is we are products of, of being the best anxiety-filled people there can possibly be. I mean, it's kind of sad to think about that. And it would be sad to think about that if it was only about, about evolution, but it's not because we're human beings. We're not just animals. We're human beings, and we have a cerebral cortex, and our, and our way of being can be different. It can be different. We don't have to live lives that are always full of anxiety, even though the anxiety is always there. We can make choices not to be anxious all the time. The very last piece of, of, of what happens in, in Jesus' gospel, and there's nothing that I can think of historically that was a more anxious time than, than the ending of the city of Jerusalem. And whether Mark was talking about it as it might happen in a prescient sort of a way, or after it happened, it doesn't really matter, because what Mark was saying was is that the entire world for a Jewish person would be over um, when the temple fell and the city was destroyed. It would be no more. And that's, that's the time that Jesus lived and that's the time that Mark was writing. So the anxiety was there. But what Mark, what Jesus says at the end is just so telling because Jesus says, and this is the beginning of the birth pangs. Now, I've never born a child, but I've been around enough to know the joy that happens after a child is born. I know the pain and the worry and the anxiety that was on Kay's faces as she birthed our children before it happened. And I had, I had some sense of this woman that I loved so desperately going through that kind of pain and indeed labor, because I was fortunate enough to be there holding her hand. But I do know the joy that was on her face when she first held one of her children. And what that was like. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's not just the birth pangs, it's what happens afterwards. It's this joy that comes after. And what Brene Brown was so good at talking about was this is that whereas we, we, are, we are, are mired in this place of anxiety, and fear, and, and we all know that that's true. We live in lives of that. How many of you either read a newspaper or a magazine, watched television, or listened to the radio this past week? How many did one of those things? Well, we're conditioned towards, towards the very worst because that's what's happening in our world around us. We're conditioned to that. It's nobody's fault, I don't think. It's necessarily the, the, the media's fault. It's just the way the world is around us. It's what they choose to put on, and it's what we are conditioned to. And it's all that we're conditioned to. And what Brene Brown says is that we, there is joy. There is a choice to find joy in our lives. 
and that we choose then whether to get mired in the anxiety and the worry and the fear of disappointment or to consciously turn our faces and our hearts towards joy. Now that sounds very Pollyannish. I know it does. It sounds like, well, that's wonderful platitude, but, but we live in the world that we live in, and how can we possibly find joy in this world? Well, what Brown said that really staggered me was she said, and she's a researcher, she talks to thousands and thousands of people. She said that every person she talked to who had joyfulness in their heart attributed that joyfulness to one thing, and that one thing is gratitude, thankfulness. That there is a direct correlation between being thankful and being joyous. And that those who were able to, to be full of gratitude were those who were the most joyous. An inter interesting thing she said, you know, it's not an attitude of gratitude. It's not thinking, well, I want to be grateful, so therefore I am a grateful person. She said, it's the practice of gratitude. She said, it's not, it's like, it's like yoga, you know, the practice of yoga. Like she says, I wear yoga pants all the time. I don't practice yoga. <laughs> so it doesn't really work. You know? It's the practice. It's the doing. It's the, it's the being able to, in our lives, stop and have gratitude. It's like at the evening meal with your children saying, so what was the best thing that happened today? What are you thankful for today? And Brown says, sometimes it may just be, I got through it. But to be thankful, to, 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 to set your smartphone to, to, to beep every three hours to stop and go, oh, wow, I'm really thankful for a beautiful day or amazing leaves on the ground or, or whatever. But she says it's, it's, it's being able to practice gratitude that brings joy into our lives. It's an equation. It works, she says, because it worked for her. But it has to be intentional. We have to think about doing it. We have to find those things to be grateful for. Our world around us doesn't encourage thankfulness. It, it doesn't say when you open the paper, what, you know, be thankful. Like read this paragraph and now find something in your life you're thankful for. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So we have to find those ways that we can bring to our mind the practice of being grateful. She talks a lot about, and this is from her book, The Power of Vulnerability. Um, she, she talked a lot about about the things that the most grateful people, even those who, who had gone through, through really devastating traumatic things, what they thought about in terms of, of gratitude every day. And one of the things that she said, the first thing she said was, be grateful for the little things. The little things. I mean, the big things are hugely important. Having a child, uh, graduating from college, getting your doctorate. I mean, those are really huge things to be thankful for. But she said, the people who lost loved ones what they said they wished they had back was the everyday things. Was having her wife remind her to put her seatbelt on. Was having the children fussing in the back seat and watching her husband turn around and going, you know, stop that. It's the little things in life that they miss the most. It wasn't the big things. So how do we train ourselves to be really thankful for the little things that happen in our life? The second thing she wrote about she, she said, show, show your gratitude, show your gratefulness 
show your joy to the world around you. One of the things that people who were going through traumatic experience missed most was joy that was emanated from other people. She said, I thought it was so interesting, she said, people who are going through traumatic experiences and, and, and are sad love to see the, the joy and gratefulness in other people because it validates what they were joyful about in the relationship that they lost. Your joyfulness validates me and my joyfulness, even if it's in the past. Your, your gratitude promotes and provokes gratitude out of me, even if I'm grateful for something or somebody that's gone. So showing your gratitude, e even to those who you know are, are sad or, or in some kind of grief, showing your gratitude can only help them realize that their gratitude is valid, that it makes sense. And the third thing she said was don't squander your joy. Don't give it away. Don't let it, don't think I'll be joyful tomorrow. Today I want to be anxious. Don't do that. Because soon tomorrows are over and then we live lives that are, are lives of disappointment and lives of sadness and lives of anxiety. So Jesus, knowing who he was and what was happening around him, pointed towards that time that would be full of joy when the birth happened as it would happen, as it does happen. And that, and that in that joyful moment, to be able to share that with others. And so this realm of generosity, this realm of joyfulness then, becomes contagious. And it does. Because if anxiety is contagious, and we know that's true, then maybe joyfulness is contagious too. Maybe joyfulness can be shared as well. So as I thought about Eli's coming, um, speaking about Hannah, reading about Hannah, made me think of Woody Allen. I mean, okay. <laughs> because, you know, Woody Allen made a movie called Hannah and Her Sisters, right? So I want to read you um, um, some of the text from the movie, Hannah and Her Sisters. And this is Mickey who was speaking. Mickey was played by Woody Allen. And Mickey is, you know, it's about three sisters, and all of their marriages sort of fall apart. And Mickey's one of the husbands. And, and he's, he's in a bad place, as you will hear. So this is Mickey's monologue. Mickey says, One day, about a month ago, I really hit bottom. You know, I just felt that in a godless universe, I didn't want to go on living. Now, I happened to own this rifle, which I loaded, believe it or not, and pressed it to my forehead. And I remember thinking, I'm going to kill myself. And I thought, what if I'm wrong? What if there is a God? I mean, after all, nobody really knows that. And then I thought, no, you know, maybe it's not good enough. I want certainty or I want nothing. And I remember very clearly the clock was ticking and I was sitting there frozen with the gun to my head debating what to do and boom, the gun goes off. All of a sudden, he says, the gun went off and I was so tense my finger squeezed the, fi my finger squeezed the trigger inadvertently. But I was perspiring so much the gun had slid off my forehead and missed me. This is Woody Allen, remember. <laughs> Suddenly, neighbors were pounding on the door, and I don't know, the whole scene was just pandemonium. I ran to the door. I didn't know what to say. I was embarrassed and confused, and my mind was racing a mile a minute. I knew just one thing. I had to get out of the house. I had to just get out in the fresh air and clear my head. 
I remember very clearly, I walked the streets. I walked and I walked. I didn't know what was going on in my mind. It all seemed so violent and so unreal to me. I wandered for a long time up the Upper West Side. It must have been an hour, hours. My feet hurt, my head was pounding, and I had to sit down. I went into a movie house. I didn't know what was playing or anything. I just needed a moment to gather my thoughts and, and to be logical and put the world back into rational perspective. And I went upstairs to the balcony and I sat down. And the movie was a film that I'd seen many times in my life since I was a kid, and I always loved it. I'm watching those people up on the screen, and I'm starting to get hooked on the film. I started to feel, how can you even think of killing yourself? I mean, isn't that so stupid? Look at all the people up there on the screen. They're really funny. And what if, what if the worst is true? What if there is no God, and you only go around once, and that's all? Well, you know, don't you want to be part of the experience? You know, what the hell, it's not all a drag. And I'm thinking to myself, geez, I should stop ruining my life searching for answers I'm never going to get and just enjoy it while it lasts. And who knows? I mean, maybe there is something. Nobody really knows. I know maybe it's a very slim read to hang your whole life on, but that's the best we have. And then I started to sit back, and I actually began to enjoy myself. I actually began to enjoy myself. Mickey finds grounding in a film that he's seen since he was a boy. Compassion and, and relationship with people up on the flat screen. Yet all of a sudden, his life takes a turn. There's something different now. The, light, the light's different. The sounds out in the street are different. There's a spring in his step as he leaves the theater. There's joy in his life. Joy. Real joy. So please stand in a 